We all know we have limits, and in our created human state, it is good to meditate on those from time to time. I want to mention two human limits that in our condition in a fallen world, we buck up against all the time. At first, we cannot fully understand the hearts of other people. We cannot fully understand the hearts of other people. And secondly, and perhaps more surprisingly, we cannot fully understand our own hearts. We cannot fully understand the hearts of other people, and we cannot fully understand ourselves. We lack the kind of clarity of insight and depth of knowledge that belongs only to God. We lack those things being not God ourselves. And so not being God in looking at the lives of others and in perceiving our own hearts, we do not see as clearly as we think we might. And there are two huge purposes that I want to focus on in the book of Proverbs this morning, among many other purposes of the book. Two that, is, that are certainly clear from our passage today. Proverbs helps us to think rightly as we relate to other people. We think wisely about how to relate to other people. And then we think, secondly, about how to make choices for the good of our souls. Proverbs presses our attention to what will be in the best interest of the whole of your life. Proverbs does not want us to short-circuit our lives with short-term thinking. Living for the here and now with instant gratification and no thought to consequences or the way that certain choices will take us. Instead, Proverbs, in two huge purposes, help us to relate wisely to other people and to help us make individual choices that will be for the good of our souls. And as we age, we will realize we do not have full access to the lives of others. Not people in our household, not people we are friends with, not co-workers in our lives. We do not have the fullest access to the hearts of human beings. There is a kind of hiddenness that abides. Not fully, but that is true and that abides. At some point, we will realize things are not always what they seem. And I want to take you in verse 10 to the principle that this writer lays out about the hiddenness of the human heart. Verse 10 tells us the heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joy. Thinking about that proverb makes us realize the exclusivity of the inner life of each one of us. The heart knows its own bitterness. It's not saying you will know all the bitternesses that are in the hearts of others, but your own you could discern. You are aware if there is bitterness within you, your heart is not ignorant of that. Your heart, it says, knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joy. So that in your heart, there are various emotions. Emotions and feelings of bitterness or frustration. Feelings and emotions of joy and delight. But that's part of your inner life. And you can't look at someone and access the recesses of their heart. The heart knows its own bitterness. No stranger shares its joy. Your inner life does not go around on display for everyone. In fact, if anybody were to know what's in your heart, you have to tell them. 
You have to describe. It's like, how are you doing today? Well, you could just say sort of blandly, oh, I'm fine. Everything's good. Perhaps to avoid what would be a much lengthier and in-depth answer of how your inner life truly is. The heart's bitternesses and the inner life's joys. Your heart knows it, even though your human limits don't allow you to see so clearly into the lives of others. You can discern some of yourself. The heart in the Old Testament is not being used here as the organ in your chest. The heart is a metaphor in the Old Testament for the place of your decision making. This is why the language of love the Lord your God with all your heart is used in Deuteronomy 6. It's the place where your affections are. The place where your delights and your decisions are made. The exercise of your will. It's the inner life of yourself. And at some degree clear to you is your heart's bitternesses and joys. And human limits will prevent others from just accessing that and simply knowing that. No stranger could completely identify and share with your own emotional state and feelings. No stranger could share or understand comprehensively how you are doing. No stranger. If you have joy in your heart... Or if your heart has bitterness, you are aware of this, but you must speak about it and articulate it to others. When you, you know, you could tell someone what you're thinking and feeling, and this is for two main reasons. Number one, perceptions somebody might have could be wrong. Clearly, we've had this circumstance and experience in our own lives where we have known someone that we thought was doing completely fine. We would look at them and interact with them and, and, and their demeanor seemed to suggest such that, oh, you know, I, wouldn't, I would not have imagined. I would not have been able to think about all that they ended up revealing and, and clarifying and coming forward about the burdens upon their hearts. So our perceptions about others can be wrong. But we also know, secondly, our own words and actions can project something different from what we really feel inwardly. We might simply want to mask outwardly the state of our inner life within. And, and that's uh, perhaps true for you this morning. Maybe you're here and, and you appear one way. But if we could see what your heart knows, inwardly your inner life would be different. The heart knows its own bitterness. No stranger shares its joy. I think this should cause us all in our lives to slow down in our thoughts and reactions and attitudes about other people. Think about practically how this can work out. The experiences that you have had in your life are not the same experiences that other people you meet have had throughout their lives. And yet the compilation of experiences and decisions and responses along the way mold us and shape us and influence us. We are, if you will, in some sense, a product of a whole host of things that are part of our past and history. But the experiences you've had are not what everybody else has had. And we should be slow to judge and be abounding in patience with other people. Everybody you meet is going through something. Everybody you meet 
is carrying burdens. People are not walking around over-encouraged. That's what I'm trying to say. That is not the default human problem. People walking around over-encouraged wherever we meet them. Instead, everyone you meet is going through something and carrying burdens in their lives. We should be slower with our words and responses to consider perspectives and circumstances that nuance the lives of God's image bearers. When Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s preached a sermon on Proverbs 14.10, here's what he said. In terms of application, Spurgeon says, I think first... We would learn we may not judge our brethren as though we just understand them and are competent enough to give a verdict upon them. Don't sit down like Job's friends, Spurgeon says. Just looking at someone's life and saying, listen, I think you just need me to weigh in here. Um, here's, Here's what's going on. Here's what you're doing wrong and on and on and on. Whereas Job's friends became lousy comforters in Job's life. Spurgeon cautions us, especially, he says, judge not the sons and daughters of sorrow. Allow no ungenerous suspicions of the afflicted, the poor, and the despondent. Don't hastily say that they ought to just be more brave and exhibit greater faith. He says, I beseech thee, remember, you do not understand your fellow man. So see, Spurgeon's application here is to look at verse 10 and to recognize you cannot look outwardly at an individual and think you understand their heart. Their heart knows their own bitternesses. No stranger shares their joys. And we should pray for the Lord to give us a humble and paced fellowship and perspective in the lives of others. Because perspective cultivates patience with other people. It cultivates understanding and compassion with other people. Getting to know others. Hearing the stories and circumstances of their lives. Listening to them open their hearts and speak about what they are carrying. What they have gone through. The burdens that they are bearing. This helps us know how to best love them. How to best care for them. Because everybody is in unique sets of circumstances. Loving other people well takes time. It takes time to know them and to learn from them and about them. Now, you might have experiences that resonate with others. You could listen to someone share their heart and think, I can can resonate with that and feel like I have gone through things similarly. Though it can be tricky to listen to the heartbreak and sorrows of others and then respond to them and say, oh, I know exactly how you feel. I think Proverbs 14.10 would just let us be cautious here with that very confident language. Though you might have gone through something similar, there is still a sense in which your heart, your life, your experiences, and theirs do not so perfectly match in every way. We should ponder the question, if others cannot look upon our lives and know us so truly and deeply, who can? Who knows us deeply and truly and fully? The Lord does. The Lord does. In Proverbs 15.11, the writer says, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord, and how much more so the hearts of the children of man. So, The hearts of the image bearers in God's world are not so easily clear in perception to everyone else. But who always 
and perfectly sees us, the Lord. This is such good news for the believer. Think of the last verse in the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. So friend, there are many in your life, no doubt, that will meet you and interact with you and never have access to your inner life. Not only because they're not God, but because you may not share and unearth all the burdens of your soul in their hearing. May God always bless us in his kind providence with people in our lives who can share those sorts of conversations with us and be burden sharers and and comrades in the Christian walk on this narrow way. Above and beyond any earthly friend is the Lord Jesus. Can we find a friend so faithful? None more faithful than Jesus. None greater than Jesus. None more constant than Jesus. None more knowledgeable than Jesus. None more loving than Jesus. You won't find a friend who loves you more than your friend Jesus does. In Psalm 56 verse 8, the psalmist takes comfort by saying to God, You have kept count of my tossings and have put my tears in your bottle. There are people in your life who will never know the sleepless nights that you have had, but the Lord knows and He counts every tossing. Every awkward and uncomfortable insomniac period of the night where you are weighed down and you don't share that with others. The Lord knows every tear that you shed in private is bottled by the Lord who knows you and loves you. Others in your life may not be able to keep track of all of these things, but none slip through the cracks for the Lord. He sees you, he loves you, and you should know that his plans for you are resurrection, glory, and everlasting joy in him. Press on, dear brother or sister. The Lord knows. There's a pastor and writer named Jared Wilson who says, Christian, the one who knows you the best, all your secrets, all your sins, all your cravings, all your failings, the one who knows you the best loves you the most. I'm banking all my hope in that. You won't find better news, friends, than the love of Christ Jesus for his people. And there is nothing he doesn't know. So we can't hide from him. There's no notion of thinking, well, others may not know my inner life. Neither the Lord as well. No. Away with that delusion. The one who knows you best loves you the most cares for you deeply, counts your every tossing, bottles your every tear. This is the present state of things. There is a future state of things. The Bible is good to press on present realities and future realities sometimes back to back. In verse 11, it says, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. You see, what I I love to know that not only is verse 10 true, verse 11 is also true. Verse 10 may tell us about the truth of mankind under the sun filled with a variety of complex emotions and feelings, joys and bitternesses, delights and frustrations. But here's what's coming. And verse 11 tells us the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. You notice that latter phrase will flourish. That promise there, that's what we long for. 
a life to flourish. We long for the peace and shalom of God. We long for well-being inwardly and outwardly. We long not only to dwell as a person in peace and joy, but in a place where peace and joy and justice reign. And you need to know, my friend, that is the future for the people of God. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. The house and tent there are images of the life of the person. The house of the wicked represents the culmination of the decisions they're building their life by. Everything they do, every commitment they make, every choice they make, every action they perform, these are acts of building. And so think of the wicked as like a house. And what's the future for the house of the wicked? Well, the wicked, they are on a path headed toward destruction, but the tent of the upright will flourish. The wicked and the upright are contrasted here. The one who is upright is called such, not because he comes into this world good, but because he is upright in that he pursues the Lord who is righteous. And he wants to turn from what is wicked and love the one who is the fountain of all goodness. And that person becomes an upright person because he comes to know God. It's the knowing of God, the revering of God, the worshiping of God, the obedience to God that is shaping and forming this person. He's therefore called the upright one. And his life, his tent will flourish. That's the future for the people of God. It's contrasted here strongly and not for the first time here in Proverbs. Many times we have heard of the wicked and the upright and their futures respectively. There is a bit of a paradox in this verse. Did you notice it doesn't say the house of the wicked and the house of the upright? When I think of the house of a wicked, I think of a structure that's more sturdy. But I don't think of something sturdy when I think of a tent. I think of something that's far more vulnerable than a house. And this is part of the paradox of the age. Because if the wicked were to look at what they are building and consider themselves quite secure... And the righteous were to look at their own lives and the the turning of sin with repentance and the hoping in God. They might feel quite vulnerable in a world that's passing away. And yet the tent of their life will flourish. And that's because they are founded on solid ground. On Christ the solid rock I stand. This very kind of image lies behind the wisdom of the Lord Jesus. Think of his teaching in Matthew 7 when he spoke of two kinds of builders. He ends his Sermon on the Mount talking about the wise builder and the foolish builder. And the foolish builder is building a house, but it's going to be destroyed. The wise person is building a house, but it's going to be vindicated and established and endure. Why? Not because of the individual builder's goodness, but because of the pursuit of the Lord who himself is good and full of life and blessing. The tent of the upright will flourish because this is one who loves God. And he is the fountain of all stability and firmness and life and peace and joy. The Bible wants you to think not of five years from now or ten years from now. The Bible wants you to ask this question, in the end, will my house or tent be destroyed or flourish? These are spiritual questions. And it's all about the trajectory of your life in the here and now with what your heart loves and the small decisions you make. You are a carpenter in your life and you might not have thought of it that way. And yet every decision you make is building something. I wonder if you're prepared for everything you've built to be destroyed because you've done so in rejection of the wisdom and goodness of God. 
and in pursuit of what would be rebellious and dishonorable to God. The upright should be encouraged that those who want to know God know that they are not perfect disciples, but they love the one who himself is righteous and his righteousness is counted to them. They are upright because by faith they walk. They don't look to the glittery things of this world to satisfy their souls. They want to know God. And therefore their end is flourishing. God's viewpoint is higher than ours. And it is always accurate. The Proverbs speak from that vantage point, right? As the Lord sees his image bearers, the wicked will be destroyed and the upright will flourish. The reason for this is the poor moral calculation in the mind of the fool. Look in verse 12 here. The fool has wrongly evaluated something. If the end of the fool's carpentry work, all of his building, all of the construction, if the end is destruction, well, what went wrong? Well, you see, he thought everything was going to be just fine. He thought, I can work this out in the end. It won't be too late. I can manage any of the collateral damage and difficulty and consequences that come. It'll all work out for me. You see in verse 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. This is the fool's poor evaluation. And I think verse 12 explains verse 11. I've tried to show us over these weeks the interconnection among these different units of Proverbs. And here in verse 11, we're told that the house of the wicked will be destroyed. And in verse 12, the destruction is the end of a way that was chosen. And it seemed right. Seems right is a subjective evaluation. The fool looks at things, looks at his decisions, looks at the different forks in the road, and thinks, hey, this just seems fine to me. And therefore, the decision-making process of the fool is by instinct. What seems right in his eyes. But of course, even earlier in the Old Testament, we know the national danger that the book of Judges tells us. That there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. What a disastrous result that turns out to be for the people on a grand scale. But in a small scale, your life is like a little world. And the way that seems right to you might not be right to you. In the end, it is not your sincerity that's weighed in the balance. You can be sincerely wrong. There's a way that seems right. This proverb, as one scholar says, it deals with human perception versus reality. What seems the path of life might turn out to lead to dire consequences. So this proverb, the writer says, calls on us to constantly evaluate our path. There is a way that seems right. It cautions us from just judging by the appearance of things. That's been a theme through several of these proverbs. Appearances might be deceiving. What, what looks like to be the case outwardly might not be the whole story. So here's someone who's looking at their life. And if you ask them how things are going, they'd say, I think things are going just fine. You know, when I look at the decisions I'm making, how things are going, it looks good to me. And, and their evaluation is completely subjective. Proverbs 16.25 gives the same proverb. It's repeated. Chapter 16.25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. 
Last week, I gave the illustration that would apply here as well. Haven't you ever asked someone for directions to go to this place or that place? You didn't get all the details, but you started on your way. And you thought, well, this seems like the right direction. And you didn't end up in the right place at all. You're like, well, this is completely a waste of time. I've just been circling myself. And here, here you have an example of a movement in a direction that was the wrong way. Seemed right. But its way is the end to death. Its way, its end is the way to death. Death there is a destination. Have you looked at it that way before? Look at the end here in verse 12. The word death is a destination. It's important to affirm that because everybody dies physically, the righteous and the unrighteous. Oh, the book of Ecclesiastes hits on that theme constantly. All go to one place in terms of earthly temporal death. We go to the grave. The writer of Ecclesiastes presses on that point. This destination language is not about mere physical death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but it's it. It is not to life. That is not the future for the wicked. That is not where the fool's path leads. The fool's path leads to a place that is death. What Revelation 21 and 22 might call the second death. Judgment. To reject the God of life, to reject the way of goodness and wisdom, is to be upon a path where there are only the alternatives. Death and corruption and judgment. Think of the good news of Jesus' own person and work, his claims. I shared with you last week from John 14, 6, and we think about it again this morning. The way language is applied to Jesus in his own claim. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Now read chapter 14, 10 and following here. We're looking at verse 12 at the moment. There is a way that seems right. There's not only a way to life, there is a way that has a name. The name of the way is Jesus. And he not only claims to be the way, he claims to be the truth. The gospel is not news about something that's, uh, you know, an estimate uh, or we're sort of lobbing in a, in a good direction this, uh, this uh, object and we're hoping it's heading in the right place. This is not a shot in the dark. To follow Christ is to follow the one who will not lead us astray. He himself is the truth. There is no falsehood in him. There is no deception and idolatry down the path following him. He is the way. He is the truth. Not only does this way not lead to death, Jesus himself is life. He is life. He doesn't just take us to it. He gives us himself. We have life because we have Jesus. We're on the way of wisdom because we have Jesus. We've abandoned folly and falsehood because we have Jesus who is the truth. The reason in verse 12 that the way ends in death is because this is for a man who judged his way right and he wanted nothing to do with Jesus who himself alone is the way, the truth, and the life. The complexity of human emotions reminds us of verse 10 when we read verse 13. Verse 10 told us that the heart knows its own bitterness. No stranger shares its joy. Here's here's some more emotional insight from the writer of Proverbs. In verse 13, the complexity of human emotions is emphasized with this statement. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. Our emotions are surprisingly complex. Think about this statement and how profound it is psychologically in the human condition. Even in laughter, the heart may ache. 
So in other words, someone's laughter doesn't tell the whole story. Someone's experience of joy might not be what persists. Something may follow after that. The end of joy may be grief. This insight is to recognize the complexity of human emotions and that one experience or one outward expression is not the whole story of a person. You might go to work feeling aches in your heart that always are unexpressed and unaddressed. You might come home feeling griefs about life that go unacknowledged and unarticulated. You might come to church feeling weighed down by burdens and you speak about them with no one. You might join folks for a meal and you feel consumed by despair, but you hide it outwardly with laughter. You see, even in laughter, the heart may ache. In the end of joy, uh, grief, it might be grief. One writer says, how commonly does grief follow joy? Think of this. The joy of loving others is, is followed by the grief of losing them. The delight in being reunited with family and friends leads to a sense of loss as you lose contact. In this life, one of the things that pains our souls is that when we begin to experience joy, we can't hold it. Here we got these circumstances and emotions of delight, and we're like, man, I just want, I don't want this to stop. I want to hold on to this. When we read verse 13, you think, my goodness, this is certainly the experience we have in life. Laughter and heartache, joy and grief. We long for the day when joy won't end. We long for that day. That day is coming. We long for the day when joy never ends and when all of our tears will be wiped for the last time. That day is coming because Christ is coming. Tears will be wiped away for a last time. And it's not because we're going to be callous It's not because we've grown impenetrable. It's because perfect justice will reign. And resurrected glory and life will be our future. The vibrancy and vitality of knowing God will be the consummation of our creative purpose. When we read that the end of joy may be grief, friend, that's for this life only. Think bigger though. While for now the end of joy may be grief... We can say with the promise of the gospel, the end of grief will be joy. The day will come when joy shall never end. Grief will never follow it. Sorrow will never spoil it. Death will never haunt it. There will be life and joy unending. So verse 13 not only taps into the recesses of our human condition and the complexity of our emotions, it leaves us longing For sorrow to end. The righteous and the unrighteous should know that the sowing in their lives and the reaping that will come match. And that those who do not want God shall not have him. And those who love the Lord and pursue the Lord, he shall be their everlasting portion. Verse 14 tells us why it is that grief will only be in this life for the, unbe- for the believer. And while laughter and heartache may exist, coexist in the heart now, there will only be joy and peace in the life to come for the people of God. And that is because those who are what are called good, a good man or a good woman, one who fears the Lord, will be filled with the fruit of his ways. But the grief and the sorrow that is tasted now in this life, 
is but a foretaste of the judgment and alienation from the blessing and peace of God that will be the fruit of the ways of the wicked. Everything in both directions reaches its state of culmination. And that is what makes sin so horrific. Because our eyes cannot fully see and experience now where it leads. If you saw what the warnings of Scripture beckon you to see, and if you could taste the joys of knowing God that the Scriptures describe accurately and faithfully to us, we would daily flee from sin and look to Christ without hesitation. But sin makes us foolish. Sin makes us stupid. We think to ourselves, I can live any way I want. This way seems right to me. I'm just hoping it's all going to work out for me in the end. Verse 14 has a promise for us. The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways. And a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. You see, you don't want to just eat any fruit that you find. We were watching a show as a family the other day. And there were some berries in the forest that were perfectly fine to eat and other berries that cause sickness and poison. If you read verse 14, the fruit that someone is being filled with, there's certain fruit you would want to take in and be filled with and others that would just kill you. And here in verse 14, the promise is that the backslider in heart is going to be filled with the fruit of their ways. I wonder if you would want to taste and enjoy the fruit of your ways as someone turning from the Lord. You wouldn't. That is not what you would want. You find sin appealing for the time being. You find the temptations of this life alluring. But sin never presents itself honestly. Let the wisdom of the Bible tell you the truth. You won't hear this kind of truth throughout our culture. You'll hear it here. The backslider in heart. Oh, I think that's interesting. In heart. Even the word backslider and the phrase in heart fascinates me as a reader. Because it doesn't just say the wicked will be filled with the fruit of his ways. Maybe somebody didn't always appear to be one way, but they began to slide. A backslider. Spurgeon comments on this term backslider in a sermon on chapter 14, 14. Spurgeon says, this is a sinner who's not a back runner or a back leaper, but a backslider, Spurgeon says. Someone who slides back with an easy, effortless motion, softly and quietly, and perhaps unexpectedly to himself or anybody else. You pause for a moment. If you think about if, if you're running and slide with socks on a hardwood floor, you're less prone to make noise sliding than you are stomping and jumping around. In this case, a backslider could be something quite stealthy to the person's own soul. Certainly to those looking around. Spurgeon goes on and he says, nobody ever slides up. Nobody ever slides up. But if great care be not taken, they will slide down, slide back. Or in other words, backslide. It's easily done. If you want to know how to backslide, the answer is to leave off going forward. And you will slide backward in the Christian life. There is no standing still. There is no standing still. There is pursuing Christ, fleeing from sin, or if in one's delusion they think, I'm just going to stand still, you will slide and not forward. It's relevant to Paul's question, to the Galatians in chapter 5, 7. Paul says to them, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? 
And that's an important question. You are running well. What's happened? You should, even this morning, on August 7, 2022, have a moment of stock-taking of your spiritual life, wondering, would I describe my pursuit of Christ as vibrant and running well? If I am not running well, what changed? Well, the Lord doesn't change. His promises didn't become untrue. His word didn't become irrelevant. What happened? You were running well, Paul says. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? What lie are you believing? What bankrupt promise of sin have you laid hold of? You were running well. What has started to hinder you? When's the last time you thought and meditated upon the word of God and spent time in prayer and served someone's needs? When is the last time you thought about such spiritual disciplines and practices privately and corporately with the people of God? What is hindering you from obeying the Lord? Here's what I can read from verse 14 here. The backslider in heart won't remain in heart for long. The backslider in heart, so that's where it starts, will be filled with the fruit of his ways. You see, roots are the things you don't see. Fruit is the thing you do see. I can't see into somebody's heart, but when the fruit of their ways manifests, well, they can't remain backslidden in heart any longer. All of a sudden, it's much more evident. J.C. Ryle is correct. Men fall in private long before they fall in public. Think about the profundity of that. When you see lives destructing spiritually long before the public disintegration, there was an inward backsliding in heart that you didn't see. You and I are not immune from this. We cannot so easily coast in our lives to say, oh, that's, that's what happens to others. It would never happen to me. No, instead, we should feel the warning and promise of verse 14 and be rightly directed and exhorted and even comforted as the people of God with the promise in the last part of the verse. A good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. Ah, good man. We want to always tailor this in line with teachings you see in Romans and Galatians and others. This is not a denial of our depravity apart from Christ, our human condition of sin. A good man is the result of someone who's come to know God. The one who loves what is good and so reflects that goodness. You become like what you worship. And a good man, that person in Proverbs is the one who fears the Lord. That person is called the upright one. This is the righteous one. This is the believer. This is the one who knew they had sin and guilt and shame and only God can cover them. And so they love the one who is good. They pursue the one who is good. And the result of that is they become one who is good by the grace of God. A life of sowing in that way, a life of making decisions and a life that's in that trajectory. What's the result there? What's the fruit of those roots? Well, the fruit of those roots will be righteousness and life and blessing. A good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. The words of Paul in Galatians 6 apply here. I quoted earlier from Galatians 5. This is Galatians 6. The apostle says in Galatians 6 in verse 9, Let's not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. In Galatians 6, it tells us, 
In verse 7, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I think it just comes down, friends, to whether or not we believe the Bible. Whether we believe these things are true. Whether we believe the word of God and the wisdom of Solomon is speaking the frank, unvarnished truth to our souls. Or whether we think we know better and our ways are preferable. Instead, let us plead with the Lord to give us humility of spirit. And that we might run to Christ. And I mean run to him, not tarry. And that we will rejoice in his cross. Because there on the cross, all my shame and sin were placed upon his head. And that then we would live in light of that cross, live in the light of the glory of his name who died for us, rose for us, and who himself is our perfect righteousness, the one who is good and the fountain of all life and blessing. This morning, friends, if you realize in your heart, look, I was running well. I would agree with Paul that that had been true. But something's, being, something's hindering me. Maybe it's a relationship or a job experience or some kind of decision privately or publicly with others you are pursuing. But you know, you know, and you would just be fooling yourself to deny it. You know it is hindering your race. That even today there is a merciful opportunity to abandon foolishness and once again pursue wisdom, trusting that the Lord will be faithful to his word. You don't need to fear to turn to Christ. But if you should turn to Christ, and you won't, if you know the warnings of Scripture, and you plunge headlong nevertheless down the path of folly, friend, the Word of God has warned us. The Word of God has not lied to us. We have chose simply not to believe it. Proverbs puts before us these choices over and over again, doesn't it? Unavoidable, inescapable. Will I pursue Christ? Or will I pursue, and in vain, something else? Let's pray.